Welcome back to Camden Cast, your unofficial Baltimore Orioles fan podcast from CamdenChat.com. I'm your host, Mark Brown. I'm Eat More SK on Camden Chat. It's August the 5th, 2012, in the evening. The Summer Olympics are going on, and the Orioles have just won four out of six games in New York and Tampa Bay. Pretty exciting stuff. Certainly not what I expected to be happening. And I'm joined, as always, by my podcasting partner in crime, Andrew Gibson. Andrew, how's it going? Did you watch any of the... Uh... The gold medal match for men's tennis today? I did not watch any of men's tennis today. It was really exciting. I watched the kind of recap. I uh, I was watching it with a friend of mine who's not that into sports. And trying to explain the rules of tennis to somebody who's just coming into it cold is like trying to explain what a balk is just to anybody. It's impossible. Like He kept looking at me like, okay, so... He's got 40 points, and he's about to win his set. And I was like, no, he's about to just win this this game if he gets one more. And so on and so on and so on. And then you like, have to tell them why it's love instead of zero. Yeah, right. Uh, it just uh, – and he's like, what's a break point? And I'm like, I just, let's just watch this game. <laughs> let's just do that. I get like that when I'm trying to explain baseball to people sometimes. So I can imagine, you know, it's – yeah. There's all kinds of arbitrary really, baseball really things. Like, I don't know. What's an arcane baseball thing? Like, if you're trying to explain to somebody why if the foul tip is caught on the third strike, why is it a strikeout? Even worse is uh, watching a broadcast and then trying to explain why the broadcasters are just saying something that's totally incorrect. <laughs> it just, like, there's another guy who's just fighting with me while I try to teach this guy about sports. <laughs> Oh, boy. So, lately, what do we got? The Orioles were quiet around the trade deadline, and both you and I, I think, were happy about that, Andrew, because there really weren't any uh, any deals out there that seemed like they were good for the Orioles. Some of the ones that were rumored to have not been made, and you may have heard about these yourself. I'm sure you have, Andrew. The, our Camden cast Hopefully, listener yeah. may not have. Sure. Uh, was a possible trade for Chase Headley of the San Diego Padres that the Orioles were said to have turned down, which was Jake Arietta and then a couple of guys on the Delmarva Shorebirds, Nick Delmonico, who was last year's second round draft pick. No. No. Wait. Fifth he round. He was like he was like sixth round. Who was? Oh, Jason Esposito was the second round pick last year, wasn't he? Yes. Okay. And he he's really struggling this year. Well, of course he is. Sixth round last year is Nick Delmonico, excuse me. Anyway, and then yeah, also man. Eduardo Rodriguez, who is was described a as a non-drafted creation. Was described in a Dan Connolly tweet, I believe, as a high ceiling player, which probably means he's not very good right now at all. No, he's he's pretty exciting. Well, he's but, he's in low end. What is not really good right now even mean? Yeah, I don't know. Like, it means he's not Manny this... Machado and Dylan Bundy, I guess. <laughs> Is his ERA really high? Like, who cares? So that yeah, trade, the Orioles didn't want to do, and probably that was good because we both think Jake Arrieta is going to salvage into some kind of back-end starter, and you don't want to just trade that guy for one plugging one hole on your team because the Orioles, while they're very exciting and one game out of a wild-card spot, I mean, there's a lot of holes on this team. So, yeah. You know, just plugging in Chase Headley at third base isn't isn't going to solve anything. It's not going to help the Orioles catch the Yankees. 
and it, you know, just it probably wouldn't have been a good trade. So then there was maybe the Orioles will get Joe Blanton. Maybe they didn't want to trade Ryan Adams for Joe Blanton unless the Orioles were going to get some salary back from the Phillies. And the Phillies were like, well, we're not going to give you any salary. So then the Orioles were like, okay, well, we're not going to give you anything. And then they didn't. And now Joe Blanton is on the Dodgers. And good luck to him, I guess. Actually, I really don't care if Joe Blanton does well or not. So, um, Oh, that's mean. You know, I'm sure Joe Blanton's mom cares or his wife or something. So if they're listening... Well, Dodgers fans care. Yes, that's true. I, I, well, they care between the fourth inning and the, and the seventh inning. Yes. Right. But probably not many of them are listening to this. I Well, I apologize. That is mean. Um, Joe Blanton actually is a really good fit for Dodger Stadium because his problem, like he walks very few guys and he strikes out enough guys to to make it look pretty good. He just gives up a lot of home runs. A lot of home runs. Not as many as Tommy Hunter, but still. Right. Uh, you know, that sort of comp gets thrown in. That's right there. Guy gives up too many home runs to be effective. And, and possibly is overweight. Sure. Sure. Um, I don't know if Tommy Hunter's really overweight. He, he looks like sort of a, a barrel-chested guy. Yeah, big-boned, maybe. <laughs> so the um, Orioles didn't get Blanton, although, again, Eduardo right. of the Baltimore Sun wrote tonight that the Orioles, in fact, did put it a waiver claim on him. But, of course, the waiver process works where the whole same league gets priority before they go to the other league. So the Dodgers came up before the Orioles, and uh, now they... They got him in Los Angeles, and I don't know. I don't care now. Here's here's the big question. The Dodgers were also awarded the waiver claim on Cliff Lee, who was put on waivers by the Phillies and then brought back off the waivers. So now he cannot be traded. Um, do you think the Orioles put in a waiver claim on Cliff Lee? Now that would be interesting, right? Like that who cares would be Joe interesting. Ben, who is a terrible fit for the American League East? Cliff Lee. You know, you want to sort of help out your pitching staff for the stretch run. You want to plug in an ace-type pitcher for the foreseeable future. He's right there. He's on waivers. He's extremely expensive. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's really the only question is, can they just absorb that kind of payroll? And you and I, we have no way of knowing because we don't know what that... Totally unqualified to answer that question. Well, yes. Completely. 100%, because we have no idea what's in the books. Like, okay, I'm going to ask you right now, would you have done that if you were Dan Duquette? Well, if I wanted to upgrade... I'm sorry, the correct answer is I don't know. I'm not Dan Duquette. We can't know, because we we don't know what Dan Duquette knows about the Orioles' potential to add, you know, what is he, $25 annual something? Yeah, his annual salary for the next each of the next three years, Cliff Lee, is $25 million. And then he has a $12.5 million guaranteed 2016 buyout or an option for $27.5 million. Yeah, it's a really interesting thought exercise because you get a really good pitcher, but you got to pay for a really good pitcher. Right. Um. I just don't. Uh, there, we have no right. way of knowing. Unless, if unless you have access to the budget, what the budget is this year, and what it's like for the foreseeable future, there's just there's no way to know. Yeah. I I mean, do the Orioles have sufficient liquid 
assets where they can even make payroll if they add seven million dollars on from now to the end of the year. I don't know. We have no idea. We don't know. So it's exciting to think about, but we just we don't know. And so uh, not a really what interesting answer, unfortunately. But what what other trades were out there uh, in Twitter? Well, Ken Rosenthal wrote. So I'm assuming he would have known what he was talking about, that a deal that was discussed was Jake Arrieta to the Royals with the Orioles getting Jonathan Broxton and Luke Hoshaver. Oh, God. Which, uh, uh. Well, that was good that that didn't happen, because one, what do the Orioles need with Jonathan Broxton? Two, what do the Orioles need with Luke Hoshaver when they've already got up to their ears in struggling one-time yeah, right. prospect like, We have this starters. really struggling top prospect starter, let's trade him for someone else who's exactly like that, but worse. That, even worse. Like Luke Hoshaver yeah. is even worse. That's exactly the point. So good good non-deal there. And then there was, uh, what, Derek Lowe was designated for assignment, and maybe the Orioles would try and trade him from the Indians, which led to Andrew and I's head-scratcher moment of the week, because one of the things that was written by more than one Orioles beat writer on Twitter, I believe, is that well, the Orioles might have some familiarity with Derek Lowe because Dan Duquette traded for him in 1997. Yeah, so they should try and trade for the 1997 version of Derek Lowe. That happened. That was not crazy. not the 2012 someone, version. Someone who gets completely. I don't off. know what their salary is, but I'm assuming it's enough to support a family, health insurance, benefits, free travel. Presumably, this is all part of their job, and and they wrote. Derek Lowe that the Orioles might trade for him because Stan Duquette traded for him in 1997. Yeah, that is, um, well, it's it's really kind of a lazy thought to have, but is it is it that much worse than saying, oh well, you know, Manny Ramirez is a free agent, he wants to come back to baseball. Dan Duquette's the guy who signed him in the first place. He's probably going to want to go get him. Or Johnny Damon. Johnny Damon. And how many of these guys are the Orioles even looking at? You know, they, the best you can probably get is a wry, semi-sarcastic, really dry response from Dan Duquette saying like, oh, well, you know, Derek is a really good pitcher, has been for a long time, and I have nothing but respect for him. Next question. Well, what he would probably say is, boy, it would be great to get the 1997 version of Derek Lowe on this ball club, wouldn't it? And then his other his other evasive answer would be like, well, we're always pursuing multiple avenues to improve the ball club. This is exactly what Dandy Cat would have said. I really like that impression. Yeah. Have you uh, have you ever seen the Muppets Take Manhattan? Yes. It sounds just like those frogs that that adopt Kermit when he when he gets amnesia. Well, the last time I saw it was probably when I was five, so I really don't remember. What wow, it obviously left an impression. I guess it did. So that's secret. That's like my generic any impression voice too. It's like every impression I try to do just sounds the same. So apparently we've just discovered it was the frogs from. It was the frogs. Take Manhattan. So I think we've really made a breakthrough there in in breaking down my psyche, Andrew. I I uh, I really don't know. And you know, last week we had the whole I don't even know who I am anymore because I'm being nice to Yankees fans. That was that was what happened to Kermit in that movie. Oh my God, every single thing about your life is just based on the Muppets Take Manhattan. This podcast is like one ongoing therapy it's like session. A, it, yeah. You all like, are my psychologist, my psychiatrist. You guys can all 
go back to the, uh, the first episode and re-listen to the whole thing. Like, it's got all this replay value now. Yeah. There's all these hidden messages about the Muppet Steak Manhattan. Just who even knows? I sure don't. And uh, maybe someday somebody can make a PhD out of... No, not, let's not get too silly here. But anyway, Andrew, the real raking news of this podcast... I'm sorry, my mind is just still blown. <laughs> just go on without me. <laughs> the real breaking news of this podcast is, as we discussed on the last episode, uh, I've received, after ordering from Amazon.com, Weaver on Strategy by Earl Weaver with with Terry Pluto, who the back of the book says is one of the most prolific sports writers of our day. I was Maybe he really was in 1982. I don't know. But anyway... I, I read it from cover to cover. It's not a very long book, and actually I would say it's probably worth reading for all of you out there. It is uh, 196 pages, and it's interesting just because, really, it was kind of the forerunner of the modern sabermetrics movement, really. And uh, so it, what Andrew and I wanted to do is we are going to run down Weaver's 10 laws, which are in the book, and we will... We will say what the laws are, so you don't have to feel like you've read the book to understand what we're talking about. Although, we'll probably highlight things throughout the rest of the book as we stumble across talking about them. So, the main thing is, Andrew and I were thinking about, well, which of Weaver's ten laws really still apply, and if they don't, why don't they, and how has the game changed? And maybe we'll try and look at how some of them are, you know, so-and-so with the Orioles in the present day. But mostly, I think we were just curious is how is baseball different, if it is different from Earl Weaver's day. So, What's interesting is there's an epilogue that he wrote in 2002. Let's see. The um, epilogue was the product of an interview with Earl Weaver by Chris Carl of Baseball Prospectus. Now Christina Carl. Now Christina Carl. Yes, indeed. Um, in it... They go over his ten laws, and and he has comments about how he thinks they still apply in 2002. Right, and it's another decade beyond that. Right, the game is very different now than it was then. And that was in the middle of the so-called steroid era, anyway. Right. And now that we're not in there. So-called. Yeah. I threw that one in there just for you, Andrew. Scare quotes. Just for you. Scare quotes around all parts of that. And then some more, some more scare quote unquote so called quote unquote steroid quote unquote era. And all of that is in scare. Quotes. All of that is in scare quotes too. But anyway, Weaver's first law is this: No one's going to give a damn in July if you lost the game in March. Which, well, I'm sure that's still true, because that means think, that means spring training, right. and nobody cares about spring training. Uh, I I think it's something that it's really easy to forget about even more now with uh, the rise of the internet and a million different baseball blogs that just overanalyze things to death. Um, Not that we ever do that, Andrew. Sure. But like we were on Twitter, I was on Twitter earlier and I saw um, another Oreo fan tweeter, uh, Luke Jackson, talk about, hey, remember when it was March and we were all like, oh, you're going to leave Zach Phillips off the roster and take Darren O'Day and Troy Patton? What's wrong with you? You know, because you get so caught up in, like, these spring training battles that really do not matter. And you start, like, saying, like, oh, I know it's a small sample size, but it's been, like, 
five games and he's doing really good. And it's like, I mean, you, you just, you forget completely where you are. And it happens every year. It'll happen again next year to a lot of people. And, uh, you know, maybe we should all just go back to Weaver's first law there. Yeah. And you know what, Andrew? I think maybe it's easy for Orioles fans to have assumed based on the past 14 years that the Orioles have no idea what they're doing. And, uh, it's hard for us to accept that maybe now they kind of sort of do. So when they take, for instance, <laughs> Troy Patton and Darren O'Day instead of Zach Phillips, maybe they actually know what they're doing because Troy Patton and Darren O'Day, in fact, both pitched a scoreless inning in today's game, Sunday's game, and they are both under a three ERA on the season. Troy, I guess, has now thrown 47 and two-thirds innings, and O'Day is 43 and two-thirds. That's some solid bullpen yeah, performance and, and, there. And in fact, uh, my uh, mid-season most valuable Oriole, I entertained the idea of, of putting Darren O'Day's name out there because he's been really critical to the success of the team this year. There was a stat I stumbled across today just as I was trying to look at this year's bullpen compared to last year's bullpen. Yep. So if you've read me on Twitter, you've already seen it, and I'm sorry, but for anybody who doesn't, this may interest you. Last year's bullpen, there was something like 216 innings were thrown by relievers whose ERA in relief ended up being over five runs. So that's like more than 20 Those are... more than 20 full games worth of innings were thrown by bullpen guys with over five ERA. Guys carrying gas cans just into the game with them. Lighting them on fire. Molotov cocktailing it up. Completely. This year, there's like 13 innings with guys of an ERA over five in the bullpen. And no one guy has thrown more than seven, which was uh, Miguel Sokolovich. Oh. Whereas last year we had like Jason Birkin throwing nearly 50 innings of relief or something like that. Mm-hmm. So big. That's one big difference. So anyway. Wow, Kevin Craig also. So all of that is to say that maybe the Orioles knew what they were doing when they took Troy Patton and Darren O'Day in in March when we all thought. Right, happened. and and you just you gotta to bring this back to the point. Uh, you, when it's spring training, you gotta realize <clears throat> it, it doesn't matter. Nobody cares. Right. Everybody will forget completely about it within two weeks. Right. All that matters is how they do when the season. Starts. Yeah, so I think this this first law is very much still applicable Absolutely. in our mar- modern world. So we and, Weaver's law number two: if you don't make any promises to your players, you won't have to break them. And that's specifically in reference to not promising playing time. You know, so and so guy shouldn't come in feeling like, well, he's going to be the everyday starter. And if you don't promise that. Let's say, for instance, Andrew, if you don't promise that Vladimir Guerrero is going I was to be the cleanup hitter it's every like day a in a public here. press conference as he's right. been signed, just for instance, hypothetically, if you don't make that promise, then Vladimir Guerrero will not be in the clubhouse expecting that he's going to be the designated hitter and cleanup hitter every day, even though his performance very clearly uh, in, in our hypothetical scenario does not live up to that role the hypothetical world sucks yeah i i hope we never have to live there well the good news andrew is that's in the past so hopefully we don't we don't really have to do that anymore here's what 
Earl Weaver in, in his epilogue had to say about that. Um, among other things, I'm, I'm just going to grab one little snippet here. It's the manager's job to make decisions, not to create expectations about playing time that have nothing to do with performance. Um, I, I'm also thinking of maybe more generally the whole bullpen structuring. Sign a guy to be the closer, so... Sign a guy to be the seventh inning guy, sign a guy to be the eighth inning guy. Um, It's not just a question about the closer, it's, you know, now you're promising guys, like, you have this specific role, you have this specific role, and suddenly you're promising your players all sorts of things that, you know, there's better ways to do this. So I think it is fair to say that modern managers have probably lost that way. So I guess the question is, is that something they can bring back or is that ship kind of sailed? You, I think you can bring it back. If you look at, I mean, not to be the Tampa super fan again, but uh, whatever, go race. Um, you look at the way their bullpen has been built and utilized from both a front office perspective and the manager's perspective where they bring in lots of guys. A lot of them are like misfit guys like Fernando Rodney. They just picked him up and just stuck him in there and sort of fiddled with it until they found where all of these guys can work. And I don't think they have an eighth inning guy. They have a lot of different guys they can plug in, whether it be the eighth inning or the seventh inning or the 10th inning. Uh, guys like Joel Peralta, who lost tonight's game against the Orioles. He just doesn't but, know how to win. Yeah, well, he's been pretty good anyway. Um, and then Rodney, who, gosh, you know, they they seem to know what they're doing, is all I'm going to say. So I'm not going to say it's impossible to, to build a bullpen where you have guys with, at least initially, undefined roles, but... You know, the world is going one way. That's for sure. People go in another. Going another way. So it's tougher and tougher all the time. And uh, definitely managing like veteran hitters. That's a big part of the manager's job. Right. And and Earl kind of talks about it himself because, although he, he talks about it more with pitchers because the pitchers want to be, well, maybe one, not hurting themselves, or two, they just want to be well, you know, if they're in this role, that's going to get them more money or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's important consideration for players who are trying to set their livelihoods together. So the manager, of course, the manager's job is to juggle all those balls. And, well, if he doesn't promise anything to any of them, it's probably easier for him to juggle all those balls. I guess that's what Earl would say. And, I mean, I guess the biggest difference... In the, in the free agency era is you're not working necessarily with as much of the same team from year to year. So it, it makes it more challenging. But, well, that one probably still applies, I would say. Speaking of Weaver's laws that still apply, Andrew, Weaver's third law, as you well know, the easiest way around the bases is with one swing of the bat, i.e. hitting a freaking home run. And, well, that's certainly still true because <laughs> who doesn't love home runs? It hasn't gotten any harder to run around the bases yeah. on a home. Um, I think sort of the uh, the actual core of this is, it, it, it goes back to that, that joke prank 
interview that he did that is totally not safe for work, so we won't quote it, um, where he derided the idea of team speed and instead offered the idea that what you need is you need on-base percentage guys and you need guys who know how to hit the ball out of the ballpark. Big strong guys who know how to hit the ball out of the ballpark, yes. Earl, of (laughs) course, phrases it much more colorfully in that fake interview. Um, And it's interesting that the law only references the home runs because as this year's real team has shown us you can hit a ton of home runs and still be very bad at scoring runs that's exactly right the orioles yeah. uh orioles are not good at scoring runs at all right but they're really good at hitting home runs well that's probably yeah. because the orioles don't have the on-base guys is why they don't score the runs although i don't know what percentage of, of each type of home run they have for instance but i have a feeling it's going to be a lot of solo home runs if we went and looked at that. But the Orioles, of course, are really a giant mystery because if you look at, for instance, their their expected record based on their run differential of minus 57 runs after 108 games, their Pythagorean expected record, if you will, is, uh, I believe, 48 and 60. And they're, in fact, 57 and 51. So you're talking nine games of quote-unquote, luck. Mm, that's such a bad way of putting it, though. I mean, it's not luck. Like, they didn't luck into winning a bunch of one-run games because, in part, they have a very good bullpen. They didn't luck into being 11-2 and two in extra inning games. Just like they didn't luck into, you know, being really bad and getting blown out a bunch of times. I think 19 times on the year now they've been blown out. You know, that's not luck. That they earned all of that. Um, this is it, it, it's a fluke. It's a statistical fluke thing that they've managed to win as many one-run games as they have lose five-run games, and that is obviously going to throw off your your Pythagorean expectation, quote unquote. Um, it, it, it doesn't mean that they're a lucky team or an unlucky team. It's just, you know, you can't just look at one thing like that. You know, you want to talk about, like, oh, they're going to play the Red Sox. Are the Red Sox better than the Orioles, or are they worse than the Orioles? Show your work. Well, the Red Sox, they outscore their opponents, and the Orioles do not. Yeah, that's not a sufficient answer to answer whether the Orioles and the Red Sox, who's better than the other, for sure. You know, and, and... it's it, it's a thing that's happening, and it's interesting. It's very, very interesting sort of to look at how the Orioles have managed to do this. Um, probably because what most teams probably come within three to five, if not fewer, of their within their differential versus their record. Yeah, you know, if you play long enough, you're, you can't... It's like Buck Walter keeps saying. There's no Cinderella teams. And uh, there's a lot of really good prognosticators, or or baseball writers, I should say, who keep telling you that the Orioles are going to fade, they're going to fade. They haven't yet, and that's a lot of fun. But if you are a betting man, um, you shouldn't be betting on the Orioles. But I think the, the really great joy of baseball is that 
we can we can give you odds and that's it right that's no nobody knows what's going to happen and even if you took a guy for instance like Cesaris Turris even if he's a 200 hitter well what if he gets one of his you know one of his 2 out of 10 hits you know, with the bases loaded in the bottom of the ninth inning or something like that. That's pretty awesome. Right. You never, yeah. and you have no way of knowing because even if, you know, even if he was up against a pitcher who throws 100 miles an hour, what if he gets that one pitch? Or, you know, what if the pitcher decides to throw a slider and hangs it right in whatever Cesar's Torres's wheelhouse was or whatever player, you know? You just, you don't know on any given pitch think- what's going to happen. Does Cesar's Torres have a wheelhouse? Yeah, that's, that's, that is an open question. So, uh, you know, it, it's really strange, more than anything else, that a team that is towards the bottom of the American League in both hitting and in pitching is in contention, and that's incredibly unlikely. You would never in 100 years expect that sort of thing to happen, but, you know, there's there's nothing in this world that is ever been likely to happen you know that's true we're, we're one in literally like a billion Pro- probably the i probably am giving you know just reality pretty good odds there even for sure so and yet what? And yet here we are and that that's awesome that's the story you know we keep getting caught up in run differential and it's interesting on its own but it's only interesting when you say yeah and here we are that's so cool one game out of the wild card. It's August the fifth. It'll be August the sixth when you're listening to this. It's I haven't yeah, gotten. Over you still cool can't it. say if the season ended today. The Orioles blah 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 because the season doesn't end today. And they're not. The in. Orioles actually have a very difficult stretch run coming up. Well, but, yeah, uh, three games against Seattle, four games against the Royals. Yeah, that is not the stretch run that I was referring to. But thank you for providing that that kind of evidence. Yeah. Well, just you know. <laughs> That's not coming up. You mean after what's coming up? Yeah, after coming. that. Yeah. There's a lot of games against New York. There's a lot of games against Boston. There's a lot of games against. Yeah, there's a lot, teams of, like lot of Texas what are they, and Anaheim. They except for like six games, I think, in September is against the AL East. So, you know, it'll be it'll be an interesting challenge. We'll see what they're made of, I guess. Anyway, we, we are, we're like way off track. Well, you, you've probably noticed listening to this podcast. We go we, know, we don't even have a track. Tangents. But we're just in summary, the Orioles are, are good at hitting home runs. So Weaver's third law is satisfied, I guess. Well, uh, you know, it's still a thing that's yeah. happening. You, you know, like uh, last week we were talking about how there are Yankee fans who complain that the Yankees hit too many home runs. Yes, which is the thing that's, to complain about. It, yeah, that's a horrible thing to complain about. I wish we hit too many home runs. Yeah, exactly. So Weaver's fourth law: your most per, your most precious possessions on offense are your 27 outs, which Weaver most famously sums up by saying he doesn't have a hit-and-run sign because he felt like it was the worst play in baseball. And Weaver elaborated feeling like it was the worst because you have suddenly you have your hitter who has to swing at a pitch that may be less than ideal, and then you have a runner who has to kind of run at half speed towards second base because they don't want to be too far away if it's, say... A hot shot line drive that gets caught by an outfielder or something like that. 
So he didn't like the hit and run. And that's probably why he would not want to give one away. Or especially, for instance, not want to bunt, sack bunt early in a game or mm-hmm. have, have a guy who can't steal a base be stealing a base and failing at it. Like... Let's say Robert Indino. Let's just, for instance, say Robert. Like, uh, I'm just, I'm picking a hypothetical. It's like, um, I'm just generating a random name here. Just, it's Robert Andino. It's like a million monkeys with a million typewriters just came yeah. with Robert Andino. I mean, if if those words mean something to you, that is that is on you. That is not my problem. Yeah. Yeah. So, of course, Weaver <laughs> would probably hate how much there's bunting, especially in the National League, but sometimes in the American League. It's just it it just drives me insane sometimes. I guess maybe because I've been barraged for years by people saying, "Well, Earl Weaver hated bunting, so I should also hate bunting." I don't know. Yeah, but, well, there's a really good quote. Uh, I know somebody on uh, Camden Chat has it in their signature, and it's like, uh, "The I keep the bunt where it belongs." in the closet, like at the bottom of a pile of junk. Yeah, that quote actually was in the book somewhere. I remember reading it. Well, there you go. So, the Earl did not like the bunt at all because it's giving up one of your 27 outs. So Now, here's sort of my open question. Um, what do you think Earl Weaver would have said about, uh, like, defined hitting roles based on lineup position? Like, uh, the leadoff guy has to be fast. The three, four hitters are your RBI guys. They have to drive guys in. Those are the guys, like, I hear all the time on Sports Talk Radio things like, he got up in an RBI situation, and he wasn't driving guys in. Every situation is an RBI situation. Right. If you hit a home run, you have an RBI. Like, I mean, here's the the direct quote from, from the epilogue. He says, a manager has to convince his hitters that they have to get on base for the next guy and that no player can do it by himself. So you end up seeing players who are taking walks in RBI situations, quote-unquote, like runners in scoring position or something like that. And he, and he takes a walk. And, you know, there's a lot of fans who are well, going to complain sure. about that. You'll probably hear a lot of managers say, like, well, we didn't take advantage of that situation or, or maybe just unnamed sources behind the scenes complaining about that sort of thing. But that's a really great outcome for that. You got on base. You you moved the ball along. Yeah, you're putting more pressure on the pitcher to not screw up on the next pit hitter. Right. For instance, so. Andrew, nobody likes Mark Reynolds, but he doesn't have a terrible on-base percentage. So yeah, because he knows how to work the count he can, and get blocks. Sometimes, well, a lot of times he strikes out, but he also knows how to get on base sometimes. Because he can, he can take a walk, and uh, you know that's the kind of thing Earl was talking about. I would say because he wants a guy who knows. Well, I don't have to hit a home run right now. If I get a walk, then just you know, for instance, Adam Jones might think that, and then Matt Weeders can come up after Adam Jones. And mm-hmm. now that Adam Jones is on first base, the pitcher might make a mistake to Matt Weeders, and then Matt Weeders will hit the home run. Now, I don't I don't know how like applicable this law is because I don't think there's anybody out there who doesn't in a really general way observe that on base percentage is, is where it's at. No. You know, yeah. in today's game, like 
at least the professionals know without any doubt that the guy with the 250 batting average who walks 20% of the time to just go at an absurd example uh, and has like a 400, 450 on base percentage is way more valuable than the 300 hitter or the 350 hitter who never walks and has a 350 on base percentage. Yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah, everybody everybody knows that. That's not revealing anything, you know, magical to, to anybody anymore. So Weaver's fifth law kind of follows from the fourth law because he says if you play for one run, that's all you'll get. And if you look at anything as far as your, you know, your modern day win probability graphs or whatever, if you give up an out, you've reduced your opportunity to score multiple runs in a given inning. So you want to always be trying to score runs, basically. And often, in fact, if you play for that one run, you won't get anywhere. You won't get any runs. So, I mean, how many times have we seen, well, leadoff guy gets on, okay, we'll sack bun him into scoring position, strikeout, strikeout, or... You know, pop out. Yeah, it, it doesn't even need a strikeout. Ground out to the shortstop. You can't move the runner over. Yeah. Line out to the shortstop, and then it's a double play. And then you end up with, like, absurdities where you're talking about, oh, he's got the ability to move the runner over by hitting a ground ball to the second baseman. Like, now you're, like, assigning value to making outs. All in, in an effort to keep on getting that, that out. That, that one run before you run out of, of outs in the inning. And Andrew, really, there's very, 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 very few pitchers where you can really feel like, ah, one run, we're good. We don't need to score anymore. I mean, is there really anybody? No, because even great pitchers have a bad day. Right. If, if you give Justin Verlander a one-run lead in the first inning, are you really like sitting back like, job well done, boys. We got him. I mean, that's absurd. Nobody has a one ERA. Nobody's ever had a one ERA. Not as a starter, anyway. Right. Well, sure. Right. Not in, like, the modern game. Yeah. So that's why you don't play for one run. And the the sixth law follows from the fifth law also. Don't play for one run unless you know that run will win a ballgame. Well, there you go. So Earl, Earl will relax his stance, for instance, on sacrifice bunting. Slightly, if you're talking about, well, it's the eighth or the ninth inning of a tie game, or the top of the ninth if you're on the road. Although the Earl says, quote, but you'd better be doing it with a player who can bunt or who can steal bases with a really good chance of success. Even then, you'd better have the right combination of hitters on deck or on your bench to drive home that runner you just spent, or you've risked one of your outs to advance. Because if you sack bunt a guy... And your cleanup hitter's coming up. He's getting intentionally walked. So you better hope your fifth hitter can also get that hit. Because otherwise you've just taken the bat out of two hitters in the top of your lineup, which is bad. So that's why you don't play for one run. Because you don't know what's going to happen in a long baseball game. But in a short baseball game, right? If, if there's one inning... There's a lot, there's a lot more control yeah. that you have over it. Yeah. yeah. So Andrew... Yep. Weaver's laws are doing pretty well so far. Yeah, well, he's a smart dude. You know, we we can maybe uh, quibble over things like you should never hit and run, or you should only hit and run in like late situations. I I think if you 
do something like, let's just eliminate bunts altogether. You can never bunt unless it's at least the eighth inning and you're at least tied or at, at least losing by one, right? Um, other than that, you can never bunt. Then don't the sacrifice team, bunt anyway. If you can bunt well, for the a base team, hit, that's a different story. They, they stop defending against the bunt and you never try and... And, and get right. If, let's right. if for instance well, uh, you're right. a left-handed you hitter who's got the, the the crazy shift going on, and you can drop a bunt down the third base line, and there's nobody there. Yeah. You know, I think that's yeah, something you, players should try and do more. There's no absolutes. You can never just say, "Oh, we can never do this," because if you never do it, then like the defense playing against you is going to understand that you never do this and. That makes the game harder for you. Right. You don't want them to know what's happening. You want them to think they know what's happening, but never be 100% sure. And then, I mean, you know, we can maybe say something like pitchers should probably always sack bunt if if they're up and there's runners on and less than two outs. Yeah, okay. Well, yeah. So Earl, of course, was managed or like AL. Cesar Esturis or Andy Chavez, those types of guys, you can make a pretty good case should probably be bunting most of the time. Yep. But they probably should also not be, you know, batting second or first or playing every day, that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. Indeed. So here, here's where we dive into where Weaver's laws maybe aren't as as good today, because Weaver's law number seven is it's easier to find four good starters than five, because Earl, big believer in the four-man rotation, and Andrew, I just don't think, I don't think it can be done in the present game of baseball. Well, that is literally not true it is currently being done in the in the current modern game are they still doing it in colorado as far as i know yeah it's not really like working out for them no and that's what's really unfortunate out there is that that is the worst place to try out something like that Coors field yeah Coors field with that group of pitchers yeah but oh man like just the idea of saying like we're kind of hopeless. Let's try something out of the box. Let's do a four-man rotation. Let's drop our worst pitcher and see what happens. I guess, like, the, that's I guess really... the problem for Colorado is all of their pitchers are their worst pitcher because I've just looked at their <laughs> box score right now, and literally every pitcher who has started a game for them has an ERA over five. Yeah, well, I, you know. Wow. They, they, got, they, they have issues, but that's – it's – it's cool that they're trying something, even though it's they're setting themselves up for failure a little bit. But going back to the point, the four-man rotation, I mean, it is, in fact, literally easier to find four pitchers than five pitchers. And if you have, for whatever reason, a serious rotation that you have made into a four-man rotation, you're giving your really good starters more innings. You're taking out really bad starts. Yeah, I guess the question is, are pitchers today capable of just suddenly being in a four-man rotation? Right. Well, the problem, I, I think what you're trying to get to is, like, what pitcher's going to sign with that team, basically. Because if they have any kind of injury history, they're not going to be like, well, sure, I'm down to throw 280 innings. Because that hasn't been done in, the, you yeah. know, what, I, probably 20, 30 years. But the, the thing with, like, the injury stuff is 
you know, pitchers are still getting hurt a lot. Yeah, no matter you know, what. We have not cut down on that. Like, we talk about, like, all these innings limits and, like, the uh, the Dylan Bundy rules and the Jabba rules and all these things, and it's just not helping in a lot of places. You know, we've grown, like, really attached to the Verducci effect, and that doesn't even make sense. Like, that doesn't even start to make sense. But we're so afraid of pitchers getting hurt that going backwards to having them throw more, like, that's never going to happen on a, on a wide scale. Seriously. You see more teams go to six-man rotations than four-man. Which, in fact, the Orioles are doing at at least one level of their farm system this year, I believe. Well, right. we got so many... We got so many uh, great pitchers we need to have six-man rotations and a lot of it especially for the orioles in the farm is that oh man can you imagine how much fecal matter would rain down if dylan bundy tore his labrum yeah and they would only say like they would be like well it's because you're doing it pitching him every third day or every fourth day even though yeah, right even though that probably wouldn't be the reason it would just i mean people would get fired it would be you know, sort of the loss of hope. Right, for the right. Base. Rick Peterson effigies would be burned at, at uh, outside the warehouse. You know, if if he tears his labrum tomorrow, and please let's hope nobody's jinxing anything. I hope you can hear me knocking on wood. Uh, now the Orioles are blameless in it, basically. Because they These they did are, quote unquote the right things. Yeah, they did it as conservatively as possible. And you just you cannot get to a zero percent chance of injury, and you know what 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 more can you do than what they did? So nobody's you can complain, but it would all be like hindsight complaint now. And this is this is the problem. This is why pitchers throwing more is just that is a pipe dream. It's radical. Yeah, if, if if you could get it to work, it would be amazing you would probably have a pretty serious advantage over literally everybody else in, in baseball. And, uh, you know, I, I, I would think that would be worth quite a bit of wins down, down a stretch run. Yep. I, it if certainly you, if you were a team in like the Orioles position, but then you just dropped. Cause in the playoffs, you're doing a four man rotation anyway, or three even. So, yeah, right. Like you're not hurting you know, the you're having a, your playoff rotation is the regular season rotation. That would be, you know, it's just, it's too bad. It's, it's not going to happen. So, Andrew, another thing I was thinking about is maybe why pitchers are less capable of doing that now is one of the things that was in Earl Weaver's book, and this wasn't really one of his laws, is Earl was writing, and maybe he just arbitrarily picked numbers. I'm not 100% sure of it. The way he came across is that he was very impressed by, for instance, a pitcher who had a 92 miles an hour fastball, as opposed to, in today's game, if they're not hitting, you know, 97 or more, you're really not having your eyes pop out of your head. Well, it depends. So, I mean, if more pitchers have developed harder fastballs, but, for instance, harder fastballs maybe take more out of the arm then maybe that's the reason why generally you can't have a four-man rotation or generally why you need to have more pitchers in the bullpen. Because another thing Earl said was 10 pitchers is too many. 
not again not one of his laws but that was just kind of one of the little sub points in the book so imagine what he thinks when teams are rolling around with you know five-man rotation eight-man bullpen he's got to go crazy when he sees that i go a little crazy when i see that eight eight-man bullpen's always crazy seven-man is pretty standard seven-man bullpen four-man bench um i don't i don't know if like you can really trace like fastball velocity back to that uh, I would look more at the Tony LaRussification of bullpens. Where, for instance, you always have to have and your lefty right one out specialist. You got your loogie, your roogie, you got your eighth inning guy. And, again. and of course, I'm what gonna... Earl said about those extra relievers is you're carrying all these extra relievers to face bench players who teams can't carry anymore because they've all got all their extra relievers. So that's yeah. like a, just kind of a spiral into pointlessness so i don't know I, I that was just kind of one of the things that struck me about that yeah it, it is interesting though because i i mean i have no idea if people are throwing harder now than they used to it doesn't surprise me at all for i guess two reasons one is that we as a culture have incentivized being able to throw and pitch a baseball really effectively, we've, we've incentivized the nuts out of that. Now, if you're a little kid and you look at these millionaire baseball players who are famous... Yeah, you want to throw 100 miles an hour. Series throwing in front of thousands of people in Yankee Stadium and Camden Yards, all these gorgeous ballparks that we're building. You know, the, right. Like, you dream of that. Nobody dreams of, you know doing like public service work well maybe people do i don't know we, we don't incentivize it the same way so of course like we're developing technologies and and statistics and and all sorts of new methods for analyzing how to best throw the pitch the fastest with the most movement and so on um so that's one thing that that it would not surprise me and the second thing is there's more people trying to do all this stuff the, the talent base has, we've added, you know, this, this this predates Earl Weaver's time, but we've added African-Americans who weren't always allowed to play baseball. We've added Dominican players and Japanese players and Venezuelan players and now even European players. Uh, there's an Italian who is in the Mariners. A couple of Australians bouncing around, right? Some Australians, and uh, there's a German in the Twins organization. And let's not forget Rick Vandenherk. And, right, of course. <laughs> I can't believe I just said that. Oh, God. So, I you can't know, say when things you like that, that much fear base. of a talent base, the, the guys who can only throw 92 miles an hour, even if they can be really effective at the major league level, are going to be overlooked in favor of the guys who can throw 97 miles an hour, even if they can't throw strikes. That was one of the things. Uh, last week we talked about, I talked about, the Ivan um, Nova article on ESPN.com. And one of the things that got written in that article was he realized that the thing that nobody else was doing was throwing strikes. He could not throw as hard as all of these other potential Dominican prospects. So he couldn't catch any scouts' eyes with velocity. And that's all anybody was looking for because 
when you're 15 years right, old. When you're a raw, you want to have a raw player on the Dominican, you want to hit home runs really far, or you want to throw the ball really hard. Right. But so if you're always getting strike one, control. That's pretty so, good too. Yeah. Right. And the, the story was, you know, this was a guy who just sort of lucked into the perfect opportunity, and then you know things happen and so on. But because Andrew, of course, while we're talking about Orioles greats. Jim Palmer is always going to say, what's the best pitch in baseball? It's strike one. Well, there you go. So. Right. So, you know, we've incentivized throwing the ball hard, and, and we've got more people trying to meet those incentives. So it doesn't surprise me at all if the truth is that fastball velocity is up. And maybe it shouldn't be. Maybe that should be one of Earl Weaver's laws. Maybe uh, when I write Gibson on strategy, that'll be number one. Speed kills. Speed kills, huh? Oh, boy. All right. What? So, so my... that, there's our long, lengthy digression about maybe why they have five starters instead of four now. But Reaver's law number eight, the best place for a rookie pitcher is long relief, which, again, maybe is less necessary when you have a five-man rotation because if you can just plug your rookie in as the fifth man in your rotation, you're still kind of putting him at the back where the expectations are the lowest. And he can just learn how to get major league hitters out. And, you know, then maybe you only expect him to, say, go five innings instead of go six innings every time. And that's okay. The problem is when you bring up a a rookie pitcher and you throw him in the eighth inning or the ninth inning, and then they're successful, and then everybody's like, oh, you can't move him. No, and now you've got your established setup man slash closer. Ah, and, you know, then you end up with, like, a Neftali Feliz situation where... Yeah, we want to, like, starters are way more valuable than pitchers, or uh, closers. Like, well, of course, like, we're moving him. And then everybody's like, no, but now you don't have a closer. You need that established guy to shorten the game. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So, who knows? But probably the the best place for a rookie pitcher is not the back end of the bullpen, anyway. Yeah, that's sort of a corollary. Uh, I don't, you don't see a lot of rookie pitchers come up into long relief. That is not part of the game anymore. No, and I don't know that it should be. I think there's better ways to break them in. Not that the Orioles would know anything about breaking in a rookie pitcher, because the only way they break in a rookie pitcher is panic. Somebody got <laughs> injured, call them up now. Even though five days ago they were saying, well, there's no way we'll call them up. Well, suddenly, suddenly Brad Bergeson takes a line drive off the kneecap and Brian Mattis is in the major leagues, even though there was no way you were going to call him up for any reason. Or, or Brian Mattis has an intercostal injury, so now you're calling up Zach Britton, even though you specifically weren't going to have him open the season. Yeah, but he did really well in March. That's what's important, right? Yeah. You see how it all ties together? It's cool, right? It is. So speaking of things that all tie together, actually, I don't think this one does, but Weaver's Law number 9, which was one of the ones I found most interesting because I don't pay attention to this at all. The key step for an infielder is the first one, left or right, but before the ball is hit. And Andrew, I think it's fair to say that anything to do with Orioles infielders in the present has nothing to do with Orioles infielders of uh, Earl Weaver's day. (laughs) Well, let's see. Uh... When Earl Weaver was the manager, they had a really good defensive third baseman. You might have heard of him. Um, his name escapes me. It was, uh, was, uh, was it Frank Robinson? Or... Just go around the horn with, say, Brooks Robinson, 
Mark Belanger, Bobby Gritch, and Boog Powell. Or Frank Robinson. That's a pretty or, good, uh, uh, Cal pretty good Or Cal Ripken in the latter. Eddie Murray. Yeah. You know, I, he did not want for great infield defense. I think they. That's I think it. what the book said was they won 30 gold gloves total while he was the manager. Yeah, but well, that's that's neither here nor there. What I'm about to say, so I won't say it. But I think you know what it is I'm gonna say. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, you know, I'm gonna feel really dumb for saying this, but I all almost have never actually watched a game in person and paid any attention to that first step. No, like right. that—that's what I was thinking when I was reading. I was like, next time I go to a game, I want to pay attention <laughs> to that because I just have a feeling probably Wilson Betamy does not take any step as the pitch is thrown. What I do, well, yeah, I get really annoyed when I see Betamy or Reynolds. And they appear to have the range of approximately however far they can fall. And sometimes not even that, because they don't try to fall. Right. Well, yeah. Um, So it would be really interesting to watch that and see what they're doing as the pitch is being delivered. Um, Or or so on or so on. We kind of talked months ago about what Wayne Kirby said on that Masson preseason game about yeah. defensive metrics. Well, if the pitchers aren't hitting their spots, then the defense is going to be out of position. Because if you're positioning your or your defense, assuming that the pitch is going outside and then the pitcher misses and it goes inside, then everybody's out of position. All I can say to that is I tried to do a study on that exact uh, saying that he did, and I did not come up with anything that... that defended him saying that which doesn't doesn't mean anything outside of potentially i'm not especially good at research um and i I wouldn't necessarily argue that but you know it it sounds like something that you say where you don't intend to ever try to prove it it has it has what uh stephen colbert might call truthiness but you can't really exactly it feels like it's true as long as the evidence is supporting it, but as soon as the evidence isn't, then you don't know why it's not. Um, the the corollary to this is they say the first step for an outfielder should always be back. Yes. And you often see major league outfielders who do not take the first step back. And yeah. uh, that's, you know, it's like you got to use two hands when you catch. Which like, nobody does anymore. Cool. Yeah. Right. So um, it'd be interesting to see infielders going side to side or outfielders. Who who takes a first step back? Who takes, takes a first step in? I mean, that that's something I'm going to try to watch next time I'm at a game if I'm not. Uh, yeah, it's imp- impossible. If I'm not imbibing some Natty Bows, for instance. Maybe next time if I get to go in the press box, I will look for that or something. That would be very cool. So the last of Weaver's laws, the job of arguing with the umpire belongs to the manager because it won't hurt the team if he gets thrown out of the game. Earl was not a fan of overmanaging, and he just felt like, write your lineup card, and then it's up to the players to go do what they're getting paid to do. So it's okay if he gets thrown out, because it doesn't matter if Earl Weaver gets thrown out. The team won't miss him. Well, I guess that's probably still true. Yeah. You know, don't don't get the player ejected. Get, get the manager. Because if the manager gets ejected, I mean, what? The bench coach is just going to do exactly what the manager would have done anyway. 
or the pitching coach will get on the phone to the bullpen instead, and whatever. They're all going to make the same moves anyway. There's no individuality. Well, that's not true, but, you know, whatever. So, overall, what did you think about the book, Weaver Own Strategy? It was just interesting to see the foundations of what everyone just kind of accepts as automatic now. Like, for instance, everybody that's, you know, remotely sabermetric now wants to look at on-base percentage more than batting average, which was a mm-hmm. radical thought in, you know, 1984. Yeah, you know, I think there's enough people who would not consider themselves sabermetrically inclined who are looking at on base percentage like that that is right it's it's become so standard it's not even an advanced stat anymore it's just you know one more of the basic stats you pay attention to and i mean there was a lot of stuff that was in there where he had his chapter on scouting and he had like his index cards on every player or like he showed what it what a pitching chart looked like which I thought was interesting cuz they they always talk about charting pitches and I never really had any context for what that meant and then he had like cards where he would have your defensive positioning for every player you were going to play against and then he just had like x's on the on the diamond to show where he wanted his fielders because they wanted, because they had a plan for how to pitch this guy, and so if they're pitching this guy this way, then they want their defenders in this position, and that was pretty interesting. And uh, the other thing was that where I thought interesting is one way Earl seemed to differentiate from, say, modern sabermetric wisdom is Earl was a big believer in looking at your batter pitcher matchups, which even you and I kind of laugh at when the beat writers like, well. So and so is playing today because he's five for nine against so and so. Who cares about nine at bats? But Earl yeah. seemed like he he was a big believer in that because he was even specifically wrote, well, I don't care how he did against you know some pitcher on Kansas City or something. He wants to know how this pit player did against the Baltimore pitcher. So I don't know. I would have enjoyed if he had elaborated on that a bit more. And the other thing was Earl was a big believer in the hot bat and the hot hand which uh, I don't like that because, I mean, that's just, you know, a hot streak is statistical noise, and you never know when a hot streak is going to end. So mm-hmm. what is the yeah, point in he... saying, well, he's 13 for his last 26. Well, you can play him today, and then he'll be 0 for 5. Oops. No more yeah. hot streak. You, you hear a lot about when, like, uh, the Orioles win four in a row. Oh, they have all the momentum, and then they lose the next three games. And it's like, wow, that momentum, that sure didn't mean anything yeah. at all. No. So, I mean... I, you, know, you only have momentum when you had it previously. It, so, I mean, it was all the more interesting to me when I saw these ways that so many of these things are like the, the foundation of modern sabermetrics, but then some other ideas have just kind of been jettisoned completely. Yeah, it's interesting, though. Like, people... Like I've I've seen people take the really foundational idea of batter pitcher matchup, and it's got this one serious issue that makes it pretty much useless, and that's the sample size. So how do you increase the sample of a batter pitcher matchup? And maybe we try and find uh, how that batter does against pitchers who are similar to him. Right. They, like, they have a similar arsenal. They throw the same pitches at about the same velocity. They get ground balls at the same basic rate, that sort of you thing. Know, same, same roughly strikeout to walk rate, for instance. Right. So they have the same roughly level of command. 
and that's a really interesting way of doing it. Although, you know, then you run back into the problem. Of, I don't care how he did against him. I only care about how he does it against this guy. But, you know, there's a lot of work being done in that sort of arena of like, well, he's really good against four seam fastballs from right-handed pitchers that, that have this much break on them. That sort of thing. And that's probably a thing I'm sure you can look at and say Absolutely. with some meaning. Yeah. So, well, hopefully the Orioles are doing that stuff. Yeah. I think every single team is doing this sort of stuff. I guess um, the question is, are the players listening? And if they're not, uh, are they being appropriately dealt with? And, uh, you know, Earl Weaver, he's not going to be right about everything. Nobody's going to be right about any everything. Especially if, if, not you, you and I. You build a golden calf, you know, it's just you're going to have to melt it down at some point, or, or you risk angering the, the baseball gods. I don't know. The sacred cow. This is this has gotten all sloppy. I I'm sorry. I will go. I'm not sorry, Andrew. Yeah. So, but but Earl Weaver, the book was interesting. Weaver on strategy. I would definitely say. You all should, too. So if, you, if you're going to be like me, you're going to go five years saying, well, I'll get around to reading it eventually. And then only when you're publicly shamed uh, will, you, will you actually Look, get around to doing it. It's called tough love. That, that's some peer pressure in a, in a big way. But I, I suggest before you get publicly shamed, you should just, you should just read it anyway because it's interesting. So. so what is your next Sabermetrics book that you're going to tackle? Oh, I don't know. Maybe I'll read the extra 2% next. Yeah, that was really good. That was really good. And uh, I, uh, it's really easy to see where that's like the, the continuation of this line of thinking. You know what, Andrew? I never read Moneyball either. So what do you think? Should, uh, I, should I put yeah. Moneyball above the extra 2%? March through uh, March through history a bit? Go from 84 like, to 2002? You know, people talk a lot about like, oh, he's a Moneyball player. Which doesn't mean anything. Well, because Moneyball, when it was written, it was just really these are the undervalued assets, right? But right. now the guys that were undervalued assets when Moneyball was written are overvalued because everybody got jumped on that bandwagon, right? And there are really, really interesting things in Moneyball and about Moneyball. And it's, above all else, an incredibly well-told story. But, you know, is it like... I wouldn't call it required reading anymore. Okay. You know, so, the, so I guess the idea of it is really yes. simple, and and the the storytelling is really great. The I don't know, and, and there's enough complaints about the exact accuracy of it that it makes me wonder. I have certainly read about the ways where he just kind of ignores uh, what was it, Mark Mulder and the like. Yeah, for example, he, he does not bring up Eric Chavez, who was like an MVP, Miguel Tejada, who was an MVP, Mark Mulder, Barry Zito, Tim Hudson. Uh, you know, you can talk about, oh, it's great, like they found Scott Hatterberg and he was a really useful player. But he was not the reason the A's were a 100-win team. Not even close. So. So, okay, I'll skip Moneyball and I'll read the extra 2%, so... There we go. That, I guess that'll be my next one. Probably not in time for the next podcast, but someday. Wow. Yeah, sure. Someday. You can make fun of me every podcast until I get around to reading that one. Wow, that's totally different. If Hey, if like Cal Ripken wrote the extra 2%, 
You're darn right I would make fun of you every day. For well, that. Andrew makes fun of me every podcast anyway, and I make fun of him every podcast also. So I guess really it all evens out in the end anyway. That's true. But Andrew, we're winding down to the end of our time. In fact, I think I've already made you late for Breaking Bad again. Ah, crap. So, uh, my bad. So it's, it's plug action time. So you remember, you can follow us on Twitter. You can follow Andrew. He's at Gibson Andrew, and I am at Eatmore SK. E-S-S-K-A-Y, like the hot dogs, because you can taste the difference quality makes. You can follow Camden Chat on Twitter at Camden Chat. You'll get notices when all of our articles are posted, and when the Bobblehead Factory lets Stacy uh, out, she will tweet at people as well. Facebook.com slash Camden Chat, or as Andrew noted last time, just go to CamdenChat.com. Uh, yeah, we, there's a whole website. It's like a website. Awesome fellow Orioles fans are there. You will learn something and be entertained. Um, Just don't go if you're faint of heart because it's a little crazy sometimes, but that's part of why it's fun. And uh, also, you can subscribe to this podcast if you go on iTunes and just search for CamdenCast, or you can find the link on where to subscribe on CamdenChat.com, in fact. So, uh, Andrew, we're over time, so we'll we'll dispense with the final thoughts on the Orioles tonight. Our, I guess our final thought will be go Orioles. Close. Yeah, I think I can speak hey, for you on that. Two out of three in Tampa. Two out of three in Tampa, two out of three in New York. Pretty awesome. And now we got uh, Seattle and Kansas City coming up, so hopefully they'll keep their foot on the throttle. So that's all we've got for tonight. We will be back next time. This is Camden Cast, and we are out.